Straw Hut Media. Back in March, when COVID-19 started to affect every aspect of our lives, people like Lori Marhofer couldn't help but notice parallels. People have been quick to compare the coronavirus to the 1918 Spanish flu. But for Lori, she was focused on 1981, when the HIV-AIDS crisis began. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. There's a lot to learn from our failures and our successes when we look back critically at the national response to HIV-AIDS. There was misinformation, lack of action, prejudice, but eventually, global cooperation. And by looking at what we did right and what we did wrong, we can hopefully make better decisions in dealing with COVID-19. This is Lori Marhofer. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I study queer and trans politics in the 20th century. One of the courses Lori teaches is a global history of HIV-AIDS. And back in March, after noticing the parallels, she wrote an article for The Conversation, calling out three major things we could learn from the HIV-AIDS crisis when responding to COVID-19. The novel coronavirus pandemic is kind of like the HIV pandemic, but on super fast forward, so happening a hundred times faster. Um, And I just felt like, oh, we're about to make all the same mistakes. Let's, and then I thought, well, let's pick three and um, maybe try not to do this again. But I, yeah, I see other parallels now, you know, things have kind of changed. The first thing Lori noticed at the time was a general slowness in action. One of the main reasons so many people lost their lives during the AIDS crisis. But I think it's also about, the structure of the American public health system. We don't have a centralized authority. So Fauci has emerged as the spokesperson. Now a household name, Dr. Anthony Fauci has served as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984, meaning he was involved in the American response to the HIV-AIDS crisis, for better and for worse. But during the 80s, C. Everett Koop, The Surgeon General, under President Ronald Reagan, emerged as the U.S. spokesperson on how to protect yourself from HIV. Considering Coop was a Republican-appointed Surgeon General, the information he provided was thorough and medically accurate. He publicly campaigned for better sex education, and even went so far as to mail an informational AIDS booklet to every U.S. household in 1988. Even with his flaws, Lori says people need an outspoken and committed authority figure to look to for guidance. I don't think that we settled on somebody like that quickly enough, and I don't think that there was accurate information. For example, face masks are ubiquitous throughout East Asia. In the United States, the CDC didn't recommend everyone wear a mask until April, and states were slow to issue mandates. Even as of today, 17 states never instituted statewide mask mandates. And it's similar to what happened during the AIDS crisis, I mean, there, there, if you look back at the historical record, there's confusion about what it means to have safe sex through 1984 and 1985 about basic questions of how the HIV virus was transmitted. Um, yeah, and that cost, that cost lives. 
And what, what really frustrates me is that we weren't paying attention to what was happening in China. And I think that we were caught flat-footed. Despite the mistakes of the Chinese government in the early days of the pandemic, the seriousness of COVID-19 was widely known throughout Eastern Asia. And people took precautions much more quickly than we did in the United States. If you've lived in East Asia, it's pretty standard to wear a mask and to be really careful about things like elevator buttons. And they've lived through another. They lived through the SARS pandemic not that long ago. H one N one hit there much harder, and it's it's just very frustrating that there was sort of basic stuff we could have been doing, like wearing masks. And then you had people telling you, "Oh, you don't need to be wearing that." Right? Yeah. The infuriatingly slow adoption of basic and easy preventative measures like wearing a mask echoes the HIV/AIDS crisis. A good benchmark to see exactly how slow an organized reaction moves, Lori says, is to look at how much time passed between the first reports of the virus and the first test. With HIV-AIDS, the first reports were in 1981. The first commercially available HIV test wasn't available until four years later, in 1985. And it wasn't initially widely available. It took, you know, a couple of years. And moreover, when when testing uh, it finally existed, a lot of people didn't get tested because getting a positive test was a death sentence and um, there were no real treatments. In 1996, scientists and doctors finally developed an effective combination of antiretroviral therapy or ARVs and the following year, AIDS-related deaths in the U.S. dropped by almost half. It took more time for ARVs to become widely accessible and affordable. But now in our country, and around the world, people are living long lives even after a positive HIV diagnosis. And although drugs like PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, prevent the spread of HIV-AIDS, we still don't have a vaccine. So the HIV vaccine is something that people have just poured money into because it would be such a game changer. And so far, nothing has panned out. And it's it's been quite a while. That's been a pretty frustrating search for a vaccine. A vaccine for COVID-19, on the other hand, is different. Given how optimistic people are about a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, I'm a little bit more optimistic, but this is just kind of my spidey sense of watching the media. Still, Lori says we don't know that much about it. We know more every day, but we have to wait for people to do studies, and that's going to take a while. And I think it's better to watch that literature than to necessarily watch every headline. Treatments, vaccines, and cures for COVID-19 are on our minds all the time. So it isn't really surprising that news coverage follows developments, no matter how small. For example, recently an article with the headline, Florida doctors found a coronavirus cure that's nearly 100% effective, made the rounds. It's a very shareable headline, but the meat of the article admits that the report doesn't specify the number of individuals who received the treatment or the stages of their infection. The point is, we have to be careful, especially with Florida. There was a um, quasi-study, more of a theory that came out of a circle of doctors and scientists in Florida that made it into the American media about how HIV was transmitted by mosquitoes. And I remembered being a little kid and hearing that particular bit of information. And it wasn't until I started studying this as a historian, but I realized that actually like the mosquito transmission theory was reported by some major news outlets. And to my knowledge, they never like retracted it. Um, so anyway, I would just say, yeah, like there's going to be all kinds of 
not really good information in the media, and we have to kind of wait for the science to happen. Misinformation can be well-intentioned, too. Lori was recently rereading some of the safe sex guides produced within the queer community in the 80s. When the government was just sitting on its hands and letting people die of AIDS because it was seen as this thing that people had brought on themselves. So it was like this awesome self-help thing that people were making these pamphlets. Members of the LGBTQ community were filling in the holes left by the lack of central authority on how to avoid spreading HIV AIDS. And that was better than nothing. But a lot of the time, it didn't cut it. It, it gives you chills to read it. Like they're telling people, uh, you know, in 1983, they're like, make sure to take a shower after sex because that's a way to protect yourself. And of course, like now we know that that's not a way to protect yourself from transmission. It's not a way to stop transmission. One of the main reasons the government failed to move quickly in the early 1980s was that they believed the people being affected by AIDS just weren't as important. There was no research because people assumed that this was a, a horrible disease that was confined to those quote-unquote risk groups. It's, it's, it's really frustrating um, remembering this, but it just has to do with where they noticed AIDS first. The first cases of HIV in the U.S. were found in affluent gay men in Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco. Then, the CDC started noticing it in people who injected drugs, sex workers, and then in Haitian-American communities. You know, the Reagan administration, city officials, state officials, public health people all just assumed that whatever this was, it wasn't a threat to, quote-unquote, the general population. As a result, most of the research in the U.S. during the first five years was privately funded, often by LGBTQ advocacy groups. And if it feels like research moved slowly in the U.S. in the 1980s, it barely compares to the actual timeline of the HIV-AIDS virus. Like COVID-19, the virus that causes HIV-AIDS is zoonotic, meaning it jumped to humans from animals. And that virus found its first human host in Central Africa in the 1920s. So by the time, like, American doctors noticed AIDS, thousands of people had died around the world of AIDS. It just so happened that these people lived in countries where the health systems weren't that great. On top of that, late-stage AIDS looks different in different people. Before the disease was recognized, it was hard to diagnose it. By the time we noticed it, it was really too late, and there had already been a big loss of life. And to this day, the places that are really the hardest hit by AIDS are the places where it first emerged, so southern and um, eastern and central Africa. Lori says the handling of the HIV-AIDS crisis is an example of slow violence. There's so much neglect in the story of how wealthy countries responded to AIDS. It's, it's almost like a, a form of murder by neglect. There were similar echoes at the beginning of COVID-19, when people like the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, said grandparents should sacrifice themselves for the economy. I've been really like saddened by some of the comments about like, well, it's not worth destroying our economy to save people in these risk groups. But at the same time, I think we have really gone in the other direction. And I think that people have seen through a lot of that risk group stuff. Like the, the people I know are not only worried about vulnerable people in their lives, they're also worried about themselves. And I think that that's right. We don't know enough about this virus. For now, we've managed to avoid taking that rhetoric to the next step. 
This is the first time that so many governments all around the world have taken that, that kind of public health action and that people have followed it. And it, it saved lives. It didn't save enough lives. And I, I really, in particular, I would emphasize that like the U.S. has terrible rates of, of COVID. When we come back, how the world has changed since the AIDS crisis. Welcome back. Today we're talking to historian Laurie Marhofer about the lessons we can take from the HIV AIDS crisis as we deal with COVID-19. Has the HIV risk group changed since the 1980s? And if, if so, how? Yeah, so in some ways, the the risk group has always been um, people who are sexually active, especially if they're having sex where a penis is involved. So all such people, um, people who use blood products or inject drugs into veins. Um, And there's also a risk of mother to child transmission. So it's really important to know your status uh, if you're pregnant. Lori says that while the reality of who is most at risk for HIV-AIDS hasn't changed much in the U.S., our perceptions have. Disproportionately queer men and within communities of queer men, especially queer men of color, are at risk. Um, trans people have a, have a higher risk of transmission, particularly trans women of color, New case rates uh, for Black women as well as for Black men are higher, a lot higher than for white people. And that's true also of Latinx communities. But all of that was there from the beginning. It just didn't get reported. So AIDS was really represented as a white gay male disease for a long time, when in fact it was always disproportionately affecting uh, people of color in this country. And it was there are reports of cases in women like from the early 80s. On the brighter side, we can and have applied many of the things we learned from the AIDS crisis to managing COVID-19. First and foremost, the science and the labs are better. At the beginning of the AIDS crisis, virology was still a new field of study, and antiviral drugs were brand new. The first decade or two of the AIDS crisis from 1981 through the late 90s um, is a pretty sad story. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was this whole debate about like who discovered, who sequenced the HIV virus, who really first identified it. There were these two labs competing. There was an American lab and a French lab, and they had two competing names for HIV. There's for a couple of years. I don't know. uh, Some people will probably remember that. Um, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of time was wasted over this question of who was going to win some big important scientific prize for naming and identifying the virus that caused AIDS. The American virologist, Dr. Robert Gallo, named it HTLV-3, and the French virologist, Luc Montagnier, named it LAV. And when it came time for the patent for the antibody test, both labs wanted credit. And that slowed things down. And thank God we're, we're seeing the opposite now. So all of these labs around the world are collaborating. There's a lot of open source collaboration, sharing of genetic sequencing information about SARS-CoV-2. There are actually open source websites where you can go and see like all of these data points submitted by different labs. And you can trace the way that that virus has traveled around the world. 
the French and American doctors who fought over the HIV virus sequencing credits eventually worked together. A global scientific community works a lot faster than individual laboratories, and everyone benefits from the international health infrastructure. We're in a better world because it's in place. So like private funders, the WHO, PEPFAR, the American program that put tens of billions of dollars into making antiretrovirals more available, um, all of that infrastructure exists now, and it did not exist when AIDS first hit. It didn't exist until the 2000s. I think there's two chapters, two big picture chapters to the story of the AIDS crisis. And the first one is about neglect, genocidal neglect, and it's a sad chapter. And then the second chapter is about humans actually like got off their butts, worked together, developed these life-saving drugs. And then starting in 2004, thanks to the leadership of the United Nations and of then American President George W. Bush, which I... I <laughs> I, yeah, I was not, when he was president, I was not a big fan, but I think we have to give him huge props for this. Um, the UN and the Bush administration started two big money programs that helped get universal access to those life-saving drugs for people in other countries. Right now, 3.4 million people in South Africa are living on antiretroviral drugs. People in places like Kenya, Botswana, Uganda, Eritrea have more access to ARVs than ever before. The second chapter of the AIDS crisis is one that I think should give us all a tremendous amount of hope. Lori says she just rewatched the speech where George W. Bush announced the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, which was the American program that brought AIDS drugs to other countries. This comprehensive plan will prevent 7 million new AIDS infections, treat at least 2 million people with life-extending drugs, and provide humane care for millions of people suffering from AIDS and for children orphaned by AIDS. And the whole Congress gets up and starts applauding, including the Republican Party. This was a, and that was in 2004. That wasn't that long ago. And it was just so heartrending to watch it now because the, the leadership that we have now is really different. We have waged a fierce battle against the invisible enemy, the China virus. We must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China. It is decimating our country, and the president's response has been to try to tell people a story about it that's about racism, that's about how it was created in China, and it's a, it's a thing that came from China, and we didn't like China anyway, and we're in a trade war with China, and we're going to, this is another, you know, part of this. Um, it's, it's frustrating that we've had the rise of a new right globally, and part of their ideology is isolationism and that is like just what you don't need because pandemics are worldwide things they don't just happen in one country global cooperation is the thing that helped us during the aids crisis and it's what will help us now too when china was struggling to contain the epidemic in wuhan Canada sent PPE to China. And then when SARS-CoV-2 hit Canada, China sent PPE to Canada. <laughs> we didn't, the U.S. didn't send anything. <laughs> oh man, yeah, so I, yeah, I'm a little. But I also think that um, 
I mean, I don't want to get political, but when Joe Biden's son died of cancer, he made a speech about how we have to see cancer as a political problem. And I, one of the big insights of ACT UP and the AIDS activists was that public health is political. I mean, they weren't the first people to point that out, um, but that is so true and, and politics matters. And we need like a global vision of cooperation here. So I'm encouraged that maybe we will get in some new leadership that will, that will take a different um, stand on it. And, and that would be good because if we keep going down this road, it's, it's not good. I am hopeful because I think that the story of the AIDS crisis is one of like, there's a lot of hope in there. The people really did make a difference. As much as we still have a long way to go, um, and AIDS is still disproportionately affecting African-Americans and it's still disproportionately affecting poor people around the world and it's still a problem. But the global community did a lot and, and I am hopeful that we can have some kind of a functional global response to SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the fact that people have like stayed home um, and sacrificing their businesses, their livelihood, um, people have really sacrificed a tremendous amount. And yet, at least where I live, people are really keeping the quarantine and that has saved lives. Um, and, and that is a great accomplishment. And, and it, it's really unprecedented. It's really unprecedented um, to have this kind of a mass quarantine of whole countries. And that does make me hopeful that, that, that people, people care and they're scared and they get what the risk is. And that we have, as much as we've had some bad public health information, and I really fault the national leadership at the local level, a lot of public health authorities in the United States have done a good job. We also have to remember, Lori says that the fight against HIV-AIDS isn't over. There's still about a million people a year dying of AIDS. We, we have to keep funding these programs. We have to increase funding, um, even though now we have this other pandemic. You can keep up with Lori by following her on Twitter at L underscore Marhofer. That's M-A-R-H-O-E-F-E-R. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Pride, and on Facebook, at Pride Podcast. You can follow me, at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. having, I don't want to say we're having a perfect storm because I feel like if I say that, then something else bad will happen. Like a volcano will erupt or something. A meteor. <laughs>